Good morning. Was that a new song, Brian? Is that the first time we... I like that. I don't have the rhythm for it yet, but uh, I'm, I'm working on it. Which is, you know, not the song's fault. I just wasn't gifted in that way, you know. Um, I, don't, I don't have hip-hop. I have kind of like hip-clunk, so... How many of you have heard of Samson? Give me, leave him up there for just a moment so I can kind of see. Wow, that's a lot of you. How many of you have read the book of Judges? Well, that's pretty good, about maybe a third to a half of you. Um, yeah, we've, we've heard of Samson, but maybe we haven't even read Judges. And he was a hero of mine as a young kid because... At bedtime, mom would read a children's book of Bible stories to me, and when she read about Samson, that, that was pretty awesome. And what I remembered about Samson was that he had this, you know, incredible strength, and the Philistines were always playing tricks on him and getting the best of him, and eventually... Uh, Delilah, a Philistine, uh, got him to tell her the secret of his power, and she cut, her, cut his hair off while he was asleep, and as a result, um, they made him a slave to them, and they were going to put him to death. He was chained to the pillars, and he cried out to God, and God gave him strength, even without his hair, to pull in the pillars and bring down the temple of Dagon, and they all went up and smoked together, or something like that. <clears throat> so in my mind, you know, uh, I had a lot of positive thoughts about Samson. It wasn't his fault. It was the Philistines. And I, I can tell you now, with all these intervening years having passed, growing up is kind of hard to do. And uh, finding out that your heroes are flawed. And I guess that's what comes with uh, growing up. There's a, there's a bit of disenchantment that comes uh, with seeing kind of the full-orbed character of life. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches. Sometimes we come to it with rose-colored glasses, but the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible is full of flawed heroes, full of flawed people. In fact, every person, even the notables, even the champions, even the heroes are flawed. There's only one hero that's perfect, and that's the last Adam the last man, the model man, the divine man, Jesus. And indeed, he conquered death and rose from the dead, poured out his spirit, the same spirit that moved in the judges. He poured out his spirit upon his people, upon you, me, in Christ, that we that he might make a new people, that we might become a new people armed with superpower to do super things for God. We aren't like Samson. I know I'm not. But like him, 
you will find that he puts his wants, his desires, his pride above everything else. Samson comes first. And at times, you'll find it comical. And in the end, it's tragic. It reminds us that how you start is not nearly as important as how you finish. And the fact of the matter is, is that there's an overarching message, and I want to give you a little bit of an overview this morning, an introduction, as it were, not only to Samson, but Samson in his setting among the judges, and then a little bit of an introduction of the judges in its setting, the story of God and what he's doing with his people so that we might have some perspective on Samson and realize through him, some things most important, most important reminders to our walk with God. But the overarching theme that I want to bring before us this morning is the end is too late to begin. The end is too late to begin, and no matter where you are, uh, whether you're inquiring, you know, uh, who is God? Who is this Jesus? Or you've walked in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for, year, for, for, for many years. And I hope that where you are, you see yourself as today walking uh, more intimately with him than you were yesterday, a month ago, a year ago, five years ago. And if you never, by the way, just stop and take inventory and look at what God has done in your life, that should be a regular practice that you might recognize in ways that at the time you don't even see. But looking back with his perspective, you say, God, you've done a work of grace in my life that I can't even fully account for. But what I want us to appreciate in Samson, wherever we might find ourselves in our walk with God today, I want us to appreciate that there's always a good time to move toward God. Today, this moment, now, is better than then and there. Here and now is always the better place, the better time. And here and now is always present. I don't know if you realize that, but here and now is always this moment, this opportunity, this present occasion. And that's a part of the umbrella of God's grace. There isn't ever a moment that you can't turn to him, that you can't start now. Don't put off until later. What God is urging or in his wisdom has revealed to you must be better done today than tomorrow or in procrastination. The end is too late to begin. And if ever there was an icon of that truth, it's Samson. I want us to see Samson this morning... uh, Maybe let's begin with where I began. Uh, 
his prowess, his heroic uh, features. I mean, Samson was most likely to succeed. In fact, if you'll turn to Judges chapter 13, Judges, by the way, comes right after Joshua, which comes right after Deuteronomy. So Moses, Joshua, Moses, Joshua, Judges. I have this thing. I always go like this, from left to right. But to you, it's from right to left, isn't it? And that's because I want you to think in Hebrew. In, in verses 24 and 25, I just want us to notice, the woman bore a son and called him Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, which is a reference to the tribe of Dan, between Zorah and Eshtau. Samson was an amazing guy. His name is something like sunshine. Sunshine, which has to do with light, has to do with the sun. We can call him Sunny. He had striking looks. I don't know if he had chiseled features. I don't know if he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger when Arnold Schwarzenegger looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Mr. Olympia. But he had striking looks because his hair was very long. And I'll mention, talk more about that and mention it again in a moment. He was witty and clever. He was the life of the party. He was strong and could do things that no man and no group of men or number of men could do, even if masked against him. He's got an amazing backstory, and I want to take a moment, as I said, to put Samson in the setting of the judges and the judges in the setting of God's story, and that's really his backstory, and we have to understand this to get more out of the unique and special emphasis and detail given to us about Samson. Let's go back to the Exodus. I hope everyone's heard about the Exodus. When God's people, now who were God's people at that time? Well, they, in some sense, weren't a unified people. They were a people oppressed and in servitude. Where did they come from? You know, how was it they found themselves in Egypt? Well, you remember Abraham. His uh, offspring, his descendants were to be as vast as the stars in the heaven. And these people are those descendants. They are the children of the children of the children going back to the 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, that happens, you know. Maybe you come from a large city, uh, family. But these are, were nomadic people, and they actually voluntarily 
went to Egypt out of drought. And there at that time, Joseph, one of the heads of one of the families or tribes, then to become clans, was there as vice pharaoh. And they thrived, and then they were oppressed by a later pharaoh. And they are in servitude. They are slaves. And they cry out to God. And God raises up Moses, and through Moses, he unifies the people. He brings them out of Egypt, which is the story of Exodus. They escape into the wilderness in a desolate place, and they are further unified because God gives them a constitution. Now, our nation seems pretty divided in a lot of various and sad ways, but it's still united by a constitution. It defines our government. It tells us how to conduct ourselves and more. And the people, these clans, were unified around God and God's constitution for them. And in fact, if you think about it, being so to speak, in exclusive isolation to God. They learned to depend on Him. They grew in their understanding of Him. And God had promised them a land, a land of promise. And as they came up to the point at which they were ready to enter the land, God said to Moses, Moses, you're not going to enter the land. Joshua, your right-hand man, is going to lead the people into the land. And so in the book of, by the way, the Constitution is in Deuteronomy with Moses at the head. Now they have a leader in Joshua. He leads the people into the land. They start occupying and trying to settle the land and the tribes. And when you look at a map of the United States, you don't just see one big country. You see all these little partitions, all these little puzzle pieces. Those are states. And so California's here, New York's over here, Florida's down there, Texas is down there, right? We know that. And that's the way the clans occupied the land. They were all assigned a chunk of the promised land, but they were given the task to push out the peoples that were there because the other peoples, unless they were willing to assimilate, to accept God, accept God's constitution, they would continuously and forever be a thorn in their side, tempting them, drawing them, seducing them away through their own practices, culture, and God's. So Judges comes after the death of Joshua. In fact, if you read the three opening chapters of the Judges, you will find that there the the death of, of Joshua is mentioned a couple of times. And I would, in fact, like to read chapter 2. I'm just going to pick out a, a section because, get this for just a moment, there are cycles in, it's like, they keep repeating themselves. The people turn from God. They get involved in the customs and the culture, worshiping the gods 
of the other peoples in that area that they didn't drive out. And then, of course, human nature, they get into a fight, they get oppressed, they cry out to God, 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 help us. God raises up a judge right from within their midst. He kind of puts his hand on the shoulder of somebody and he says, I want to use you. Will you trust me? Will you believe in me? Will you do what I tell you? Because through you, I want to do a great work for the benefit of these people. And God raises up a judge and that judge leads the people in throwing off the yoke of these enslaving neighbors And then they enjoy God's deliverance and salvation as long as that judge lives. Then the judge dies, and the whole thing repeats itself. The people get wooed, seduced into the surrounding culture, worshiping the other gods, and then something goes wrong, and they're in trouble. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. You get the picture. And that's what chapter 2 says verses 18 through 23 summarizes for us, and I'd like to read it to you just so you see it very clearly. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, this is kind of an overview that the book of Judges provides, so you see what's happening. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, and they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, my constitution, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel, in other words, God says, I want you to prove your allegiance to me, not in isolation, not not in some vacuum, some hermetically sealed you know, beautiful incubator, not not Eden, not an oasis of life. But right in the midst of difficulties, these other nations are going to be there no matter what, and they're going to test you and test you and test you to demonstrate to you, to prove to you how much you need me, how smart I was in giving you this constitution, how you ought to trust me, and there's no God but me. Whether they will, verse 22 continuing, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So where are the judges? Well, as I said, Exodus, the establishment of the people as you know, unified in the Lord with the tabernacle at the center even of their camp. And we see this in Deuteronomy. Then Joshua takes them into the land, starts to conquer. They start to settle it. And Judges is all about that period of the settlement. But what you need to know is, and by the way, the settlement of the land under the Judges before is the, the people ever had a king. 
Okay? And that comes with, remember, First and Second Samuel and Kings. So this is the bridge between Deuteronomy, Joshua, and First Samuel and Kings. Or Samuel and Kings. First, Second Samuel and First, Second Kings. There are times of testing, and what I, I, I know what I wanted to emphasize is that with these cycles, they don't hold their own. Incrementally, they degrade. Every judge that follows the first judge is a little worse than the one who came before, and the people are worse. It's like, you know, if, if they take a step forward, they take two, three steps backwards, and then they take a step forward, and they take three more steps back, and they're just going, it's decline, decline, decline. And as I said, it's a time of testing. Things are so bad that the people no longer even cry out to the Lord when we get to Samson. Previously, the people would cry out to the Lord. They would turn to the Lord. But now, nobody cries out. Nobody turns to the Lord. God starts with Samson even before he's born. And this is really notable to me. Before, he always kind of tapped somebody on the shoulder, somebody who was already kind of, you know, closer to God. And he'd say, hey, I need you. I want you to be that man or woman of faith because there are women judges as well as men judges. By the way, a judge is not someone who wears a black robe whom everybody calls your honor A judge is more like a champion, a heroic figure, somebody maybe that you, you know, didn't expect to be used of God who rises up, and they don't have a unified profile. You can't say, well, this is what, except they're to rely on the Lord in some way, or the the Lord uses them in some distinctive, unique way. There are major judges and minor judges. There are a few judges that are mentioned, but we're not told anything about them. Samson gets a lot of play, which is quite interesting. He's the last judge. That's very important. And if you remember what I just said, if he's the last judge in a continual decline, things are really bad. So bad that people don't even cry out. And so God starts his work before Samson's even born. And chapter 13 is all about that. The angel of God comes to a woman who will be the mother of Samson. She's unnamed. She's not mentioned ever by name. I think this is largely because the emphasis is on what the angel has to say to her. But she is an impressive woman to me. I won't have time to elaborate, but I will say a a thing about that. But the angel of the Lord reveals that she, who is unable to bear children. You remember Sarah and how she couldn't have children. We're not told the age of this woman, but 
She's old enough to know that she's not going to have any children. And the angel of God says, you're going to have bear a son. And then he says, this son is to be a Nazarite. Now, that's significant. You can read all about the Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. But the angel tells her that during this, in, this period of pregnancy, she is to follow the same menu for life that Samson is, which means she is not in any way, nor is Samson, to eat of the fruit of the vine or anything intoxicated, intoxicating, to touch or eat anything unclean, and he's not to ever cut his hair for life. Now, a Nazarite vow was, you know, the priests of Israel in antiquity, and you know, by the way, we're talking about times that are over 3,000 years old now, okay? Just to kind of put, put this is all happening over 3,000 years, I'm, yeah, over 3,000 years ago, before, one, before 1,000 B.C. But anyway, the priests were a specific tribe, the Levites, you couldn't be a priest unless you were Levite, but you could act like a priest in your dedication to God if you undertook a Levite vow. And so in a way, this outward expression is to show, to correspond to an inner devotion and dedication to God. Okay? You with me? And so even during the period of gestation, Samson is under the Nazarite vow. God says, I can't even get this job done by raising up men, I mean, you know, who are already born. I'm going to start before they're born. I hope you grasp the significance of that. I mean, it's like he's saying, I'm starting with the cleanest possible slate I can start. And in that sense, that gives us also a clue as to how difficult the times were. Samson, sadly, fails in every way, in everything, because he can't say no to himself. In fact, we'll see next week. You can read about it in chapter 14. And I hope you'll read not only about Samson in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, but read the entire book. And read it more than once. But if you can't read the entire book, please read Samson 13, 14, 15, and 16. Read about his life. I'm going to do four messages, one on each chapter, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to do three messages, Lord willing, about relationships. Because I think there's a lot of practical stuff in here. But I want you to understand, we, these messages are not going to be about emulating Samson as a heroic spiritual figure. He is an anti-hero. I don't know if there was ever a time in your life when you said, you know, I, my dad is everything to me, and then 
<laughs> you know, I love everything about my dad. My dad, he does everything just right. And then I hate everything about my dad. He does everything just wrong. And then you come back and you see your dad as you yourself see how you are like your parents, like any human being. And of course, you grow through that. But there was a time, a short time, where I said, I'm going to do just the opposite of what my dad did. Well, in some ways, that's the way Samson is going to work for us as we look at him. And I think we're going to have some fun and we'll have some tears because it, it's, it's sad as well. He can't say no to himself. I'll never forget one of my pastors, Ron Blanc, said as he was teaching about rearing children, he says, if you fail to teach your child to say no to himself or herself, that child will be hampered in saying yes to God. I, I, that rings true to me. I, yeah, we can, we can argue, you know, about the puckered edges of that, but the fact of the matter is, is if, if you can't deny yourself, then you, you can't say yes to God. You can't open your life to Him if you can't. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it is a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, self-control is involved in living the vibrant spiritual life that God wants us to enjoy as we live for him. But with Samson, we're going to find that he defies his parents, deserts his promise, distorts his purpose, defiles his purity, deludes his power. He is full of himself, so full of himself that he has no room for God and is disconnected from the very source of his power, which is God. And sometimes you may think that is just, I can't even imagine living like that, but we do the same things. And in that sense, I see a lot of myself in Samson. He is a blown-up caricature, you know. I remember as a young child being taken to Disneyland by my aunt, my aunt. Aunt or aunt? Amund or Amund? And she, she doled out the money for one of those caricatures, street artists. And I remember, I wish I still had it. I would hold it up right now and show it to you. That would be a great piece. But when I looked at that, I didn't like some of the features of my life because they were exaggerated. And I became self-conscious. Well, Samson proves to be someone who is an exaggerated figure, and we can see in some of his excesses the subtle ways in which those things throb within our own experience and pulse in influence in our daily lives, and we can learn from that. In fact, I think Samson is painted in such detail that we might ponder and draw lessons from his life. How are well, when it's over, it's over. And I want us to kind of look at the close of his life. In chapter 13, verse 5, we're told he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's part of the message of the angel. His mother 
rears him. Just as my mother read Bible stories to me and modeled God's love in my life and tried to guide me with an overt hand in letting me know that God was in my life and wanted to have his way in me, I believe Samson's mother must. We're not must have. We're not told about his youth. In fact, in chapter 14, he's uh, late adolescence, I'm guessing, because the first thing we're told is he goes down to Timnah, which is a Philistine city. He's already headed in the wrong direction. He sees a Philistine woman, and he says, I want her, as Brian put on the screen this morning in 14, 2, and 3. And then when his parents say, Samson, what about all the girls here at church, so to speak? You know what I mean? Samson, why are you looking out there? This is not a good move. And his mom, you know, his mom, we'll see, his mom speaks. Then Samson turns to his dad because he could get dad to go along with him, he thinks. His dad, of course, declines. And then Samson says, do it. Get her for me because she, listen to this, she is right in my eyes. She's the right one in my eyes. You know, it's interesting. In the book of Judges, six times be, you, this refrain, the people, Israel, the sons of Israel, did what was evil, literally what was bad. They did bad things in the sight, in the eyes of the Lord. Again and again and again it's mentioned. But when we get to Samson, for the first time, we read this expression which crops up more than once in Samson. He did what was right in his own eyes. Now, we might just think, that, that's, uh, you know, Fair enough, you know, so with Samson, this expression is used more than once in his eyes. But what's interesting is after Samson, the whole nation is described twice in the final three chapters, twice. Once at the very end, Israel did what it thought was right in its eyes. And all through... The question is, who will lead God's people? God raises up judges because those judges are to operate in his name, to draw them to him. The answer to the question is God, but it's never answered in the book of Judges. In fact, Samson epitomizes, he epitomizes, he is the incarnation of selfishness and individuality. All the judges up to Samson, and he's the last and the worst. All the judges operate on behalf of God for the people to help others. I defy you to find in Samson one time that he operates in the interests of anybody but himself. He is the man who first said, I did it my way. 
And we see the judgment of the book of Judges itself, not in so many words, but in this fact that Samson, these words, Samson did what was right in his own eyes, and then the consequences are always calamitous. They're just, it's folly, folly, folly. Foolishness. How did Sonny go from such an auspicious start to such a tragic end? Repeatedly, we'll see that he did what was right in his own eyes. He plays to his passions, appetites, putting off God's way for his own. And that really is what prompts me in my own reading to think, where am I headed, Lord? Am I headed toward you or toward others? You know, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. That means we need to be in touch with the times, but attuned to the Spirit. In touch with the times, but attuned to the Spirit. Not attuned to the times and in touch with the Spirit. Sometimes that's the way we operate. And I know I'm speaking to the choir. You're all here. Those are the kinds of regimens that we need in the Christian life because we do live out our Christian life not in a cocoon or a nest or under glass, but in the midst because God wants us to touch the world with the difference that he makes in our lives. He wants us to be a demonstration of his power the very spirit that indwells us in Jesus Christ, the very spirit that did move in Samson. It doesn't get easier. It gets ever entangled. Harder, not easier, to escape the claws of our culture. Samson became increasingly entangled. It started... With his eyes, it ends with his eyes. It started with a woman, it ended with a woman. He is characteristically known as pursuing the Philistines. And he becomes so entangled that it gets, I think, harder and harder for him to turn around, to change course, to correct course. And I think that is a call to us and a reminder the end is too late to begin. I always thought at the end in chapter 16, Samson, as you know, he finally succumbs to Delilah's desire to know the secret of his strength. And it's his Nazarite vow. It's his dedication to the Lord. Dedication that he's already violated in almost every, in every way except in cutting his hair. He finally gives in, and she cuts his hair while he's asleep. They enslave him. Think about that a moment. The culture, the things that seduced him, that, that filled his eyes with lust and desire, now enslaves him ruthlessly. And I'm talking literally, they drive him like a yoke of oxen. And then they parade him into the temple of Dagon, their God, chained. 
they gouged out his eyes. Sunny, which stands for light, is in darkness. And chained to those pillars, he cries out to God. And I, I've always thought that's the moment when he, he, he kind of sees finally. And he turns to the Lord. And I guess that's what I want to believe, you know. And he says, God, give me strength that I can avenge myself on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then he pulls on those pillars and he pulls the temple down on himself and all of his enemies. And I thought, wow, I guess you know that at death turnaround, conversion, but you know, I'm not so sure anymore. It could just as easily be at that moment that once again, the man who increasingly and throughout his life is driven by lust and pride and vengeance now wants to pull the whole thing down and he cries out ironically in these infamous last words, let me die with the Philistines. And Samson teaches us in an apparent way God may make a man or woman a vehicle of his revelation or a channel of his power quite apart from the person's character. And we do see that again and again. God's the ultimate jujitsu artist. You know, we shove and he takes our own thrust and uses it to his ultimate good. We can praise him for such grace. But Samson, who had it all, ended up like that main character in the, the stage play in the movie On the Waterfront. I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it, Charlie. Oliver Wendell Holmes says, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. I read a devotional that asked the question, who's the enemy? And after uh, talking about friends, co-workers, children, spouse, And of course, that reminded me when I used to golf quite a bit, I ran across quite a few golfers who would blame the ball, the club, the grass, the wind, the sun, a cricket, just about anything but themselves. And really, the enemy is staring us in the, in the mirror. Indeed, we have to learn to be able to say no to ourselves. Most assuredly, the devil and uh, Satan, one and the same, are our great enemy. But in Christ, he can't, he can't touch this unless we 
ourselves say yes to the enticements and the draw of the philosophies and the thinking and the culture about us. Paul says as much that we are our own worst enemies when he talks about the flesh and the spirit, the flesh typifying us. That's why the fruit of the spirit involves self-control. But the spirit is when we submit ourselves unto him and his gracious power because God does want to do great things in us. I just want to remind you that even as uh, Samson was born through the announcement of a miraculous message delivered from the angel of God that uh, adorned his birth at the hands of God's own action. So you and I experience a similar miraculous birth in Jesus Christ. It's uh, emblematic when we see a baptism, that death and that rise to newness of life, that resurrection to a new way of seeing, a new way of living. That is ours in Jesus Christ because he conquered death. He is the perfect man. And he is the model for our existence in Christ. He is the destination for each and every one of his children. That's his purpose and goal for you and me. But I just want to close with reminding us that sometimes we need to be reminded of a need for course correction in our own lives. I haven't been reading your mail. I just know what my life is like. There's always opportunities for adjustment. Let Samson be a warning. Let's not just, you know, it's gradual and we procrastinate about making those decisions to instill the disciplines the regimen that we need of God's people, God's word, prayer, devotion to continue walking with him. Today, tomorrow, even to the end. The end is not the time to begin. Today is. And here and now is always the way to determine there and then. Will you stand with me? Let me close in prayer. Maybe God's been speaking to you. You know, I know that he works in ways that I cannot see. He's been working in your life before we got together this morning. And I don't know what he's been. You would discern it and maybe in the light of Samson. Maybe this morning God's calling you to some area of rededication in your life. I urge you, here is the here and now. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ this morning. Maybe God has been moving you and in the light of Samson, you see that moment of decision. We invite you to make that. I'm going to close in prayer, but after I say, Amen and God bless. I'll be up here along with the pastoral staff, elders and deacons, if you would like to pray with us about a decision you've made or some other area in your life, we invite you to come.
Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Your word is uh, not candy-coated. It's uh, straight up, real life, and we thank you for it. And we thank you for Jesus above all, for the work of your spirit, for the potential opportunity and future that we have when we walk in tune with you. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.